Chapter 10 of The Golden Dream. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Golden Dream by R. M. Ballantyne. Chapter 10 Game and Cookery. Arrival at the Diggings. Little Creek. Law and Order in the Mines. Nooning at Little Creek. Hard up. Our adventurers get credit and begin work. A Yankee outwitted. Deer, hares, crows, blackbirds, magpies, and quails were the creatures that bounded, scampered, hopped, and flew before the eyes of the travelers at every step as they wended their way pleasantly beneath a bright morning sun over the hills and through the lesser valleys of the great vale of the Sacramento and all of these creatures excepting the crows and magpies fell before the unerring and unexpectedly useful blunderbuss of captain bunting passed a temporary existence in the maw of the big iron pot and eventually vanished into the carnivorous jaws of ned sinton and his friends crows were excluded from their bill of fare because the whole party had an unconquerable antipathy to them and larry said he had eaten many pies in his lifetime, but he had never eaten magpies, and he'd be shot if he was going to begin now. The duties of chief hunter devolved upon the captain, first because he was intensely fond of shooting, and secondly because the game was so plentiful and tame that it was difficult to avoid hitting something if one only fired straight before one. For the same reasons the blunderbuss proved to be more effectual than the rifle. The captain used to load it with an enormous charge of powder and a handful of shot, swan shot, two sizes of duck shot, and sparrow hail, mixed, with an occasional rifle ball dropped into the bargain. The recoil of the piece was tremendous, but the captain was a stout buffer, if we may be permitted the expression, and stood the shock manfully. Stewed squirrels formed one of their favorite dishes. It was frequently prepared by Tom Collins, whose powers in the culinary department proved to be so great that he was unanimously voted to the office of chef de cuisine, Bill Jones volunteering and being accepted to assist in doing the dirty work. For it must be borne in mind that the old relations of master and man no longer subsisted amongst any of the travelers now, excepting always the native vaquero. All were equal at starting for the diggings, and the various appointments were made by, and with, the consent of the whole party. Little Creek diggings were situated in a narrow gorge of the mountains, through which flowed a small though turbulent stream. The sides of the hills were in some places thickly clothed with trees, in others they were destitute not only of vegetation but of earth, the rock on the steeper declivities of the hills having been washed bare by the periodical heavy rains peculiar to those regions. Although wild and somewhat narrow, this little valley was nevertheless a cheerful spot, in consequence of its facing almost in a southerly direction, while towards the east there were several wide and picturesque gaps in the hills which seemed to have been made for the express purpose of letting the sun shine the greater part of the day upon the diggers while they were at work. An advantage, no doubt, when the weather was cool, but rather the reverse when it was hot. The entrance to Little Creek was about two miles wide, undulating and beautifully diversified, resembling pleasure grounds rather than a portion of the great wilderness of the far west. But the vale narrowed abruptly, and about three miles further into the mountains became a mere gap or ravine, through which the streamlet leaped and boiled furiously. 
It was an hour before noon when our travelers came suddenly upon the wide entrance to the valley. "'How beautiful!' exclaimed Ned, as he reined up to gaze in admiration over the flowering plain with its groups of noble trees. "'Aye,' said Maxton enthusiastically, "'you may well say that. There may be perchance as grand, but I am certain there is not a grander country in the world than America. The land of the brave and free!' Ned did not assent at once to the latter part of this proposition. "'You forget,' he said hesitatingly, as if disinclined to hurt the feelings or prejudices of his new friend, "'you forget that it is the land of slaves.' "'I confess that I did forget that at the moment,' answered Maxton, while the blood mounted to his forehead. "'It is the foulest blot upon my country's honor. But I at least am guiltless of upholding the accursed institution.' as also are thousands of my countrymen. I feel assured, however, that the time is coming when that blot shall be wiped away. I am glad, my friend, said Ned heartily, to hear you speak thus. To be frank with you, I could not have prevailed upon myself to have held out to you the hand of intimate friendship had you proved to be a defender of slavery. Then you'll form few friendships in this country, said Tom Collins for many of the Yankees here have been slaveholders in their day, and almost all defend the custom. The conversation was interrupted at this point by Larry O'Neill uttering a peculiarly Hibernian exclamation, which no combination of letters will convey, and pointing in an excited manner to an object a few hundred yards in advance of them. "'What do you see, lad?' inquired Bill Jones, shading his eyes with his hand. The whole party came to a halt and gazed earnestly before them for a few minutes in silence. Ach, said O'Neill slowly and with trembling earnestness, "'Have me two eyes are spake in truth. "'It's—it's it's a gold digger. "'The first of the gold diggers.' And Larry followed up the discovery with a mingled cheer and war-whoop of delight that rang far and wide over the valley." At such an unwanted, we might almost say appalling sound, the first of the ghoul diggers, who was up to his waist in a hole, quietly and methodically excavating the earth on the river's bank with a pickaxe, raised his head, and leaning on the haft of his pick, scrutinized the new arrivals narrowly. "'Hooray, my hearty!' shouted Larry as he advanced at a gallop, followed by his laughing comrades. "'The top of the morning to you! It's good luck I'm wishing you!' How are you getting on in the gould way, honey? The rough-looking, dusty, and bearded miner smiled good-humouredly as he replied in a gentle tone of voice that belied his looks. Pretty well, friend, though not quite so well as some of my neighbours. I presume that you and your friends have just arrived at the mines? Tear and ages! It's a gentleman, I do believe, cried Larry, turning to his companions with a look of surprise. The miner laughed at the remark, and leaping out of the hole, did his best to answer the many questions that were put to him in a somewhat excited tone by the party. "'Where's the gould?' inquired Jones, gravely, going down on his knees at the side of the excavation and peering into it. Oh, "'I don't see none whatsoever.' "'The dust is very fine here,' answered the miner, and not easily detected until washed.' Occasionally we come upon nuggets and pockets in the dry parts of the river's bed, and the canyons of the hills, but I find it most profitable to work steadily down here where the whole earth below the surface is impregnated with fine particles of gold. Many of the diggers waste their time in prospecting, which word I suppose you know means looking out for new diggings. 
but according to the proverb of my country, I prefer to remain contented with little and canty with mare. Are we far distant from the other miners in this creek? inquired Ned. No, you are quite close. You will come upon the colony after passing that bluff of trees ahead of you, answered the Scotchman. But come, I will show you the way. It's not far from nooning time when I usually cease work for a couple of hours. So saying, the miner threw his pickaxe and shovel into the hole and led the way towards the colony of Little Creek. "'Ain't you afraid some of the bad-looking scoundrels in these parts may take a fancy to your pick and shovel?' inquired the captain, as they rode along at a foot-pace. "'Not in the least. Time was when I would have feared to leave them, for at one time neither life nor property was safe here, where so many ruffians congregated from all parts of the world. But the evil wrought its own cure at last.' Murders and robberies became so numerous that the miners took to lynch law for mutual protection. Murderers and thieves were hanged or whipped almost to death with such promptitude that it struck terror into the hearts of evildoers, and the consequence is that we of this valley are now living in a state of perfect peace and security, while in other districts where the laws of Judge Lynch are not so well administered, murders and thefts are occasionally heard of. Here, if a man takes a fancy to go prospecting for a time, he has only to throw his pick and shovel into his claim or upon his heap of dirt. Author's note, dirt is the name given among miners to the soil on which gold is found, and he will be sure to find them there untouched on his return, even though he should be absent several weeks. Our tents, too, are left unwatched, and our doors unfastened with perfect safety, though it is well known that hundreds and thousands of dollars in gold dust lie within. I do not mean to assert that we have attained to absolute perfection. A murder and a theft do occasionally occur, but such are the exceptions. Security is the rule. Truly, said Ned Sinton, you seem to live in a golden age in all respects. Not in all, answered the Scot. The terrors of the law deter from open violence, but they do not enforce morality, as the language and deportment of miners generally too plainly show. But here we are at the colony of Little Creek. They rounded the projecting spur of one of the hills as he spoke, and the whole extent of the little valley opened up to view. It was indeed a romantic and curious sight. The vale, as we have said, was narrow, but by no means gloomy. The noontide sun shed a flood of light over the glistening rocks and verdant foliage of the hills on the left, and cast the short rounded shadows of those on the right upon the plain. Through the center of this the little creek warbled on its course, now circling round some wooded knoll until it almost formed an island, anon dropping in a quiet cascade over the edge of a flat rock, in some places sweeping close under the base of a perpendicular cliff, in others shooting out into a lake-like expanse of shallow water across a bright green meadow as it murmured on over its golden bed towards the Sacramento. Higher up the valley the cliffs were more abrupt. Dark pines and cedars in groups or singly hung on their sides, and gave point to the landscape, in the background of which the rivulet glittered like a silver thread where the mountains rose in peaks toward the sky. Along the whole course of this rivulet, as far as the eye could trace it, searchers for gold were at work on both banks, while their white tents and rude wooden shanties were scattered, singly or in clusters of various extent, upon the wooded slopes, in every pleasant and suitable position. From the distance at which our party first beheld the scene, it appeared as if the miners were not men but little animals grubbing in the earth. 
Little or no sound reached their ears. There was no bustle, no walking to or fro, as if the hundreds there assembled had various and diverse occupations. All were intently engaged in one and the same work. Pickaxe and shovel rose and fell with steady regularity, as each individual wrought with ceaseless activity within the narrow limits of his own particular claim, or rocked his cradle beside it. Dig, 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 rock, 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 shovel, shovel, shovel was the order of the day, as long as day lasted, and then the gold hunters rested until recruited strength and dawning light enabled them again to go down into the mud and dig and rock and shovel as before. Many, alas, rocked themselves into a fatal sleep, and dug and shoveled their own graves among these golden hills. Many, too, who, although they dug and toiled for the precious metal, had neither made it their god nor their chief good, were struck down in the midst of their heavy toils, and retired staggering to their tents, and there, still clad in their damp garments, laid their fevered heads on their saddles, not unfrequently on their bags of gold dust, to dream of the distant homes and the loved faces they were doomed to see no more. And thus, dreaming in solitude, or watched mayhap by a rough though warm-hearted mate, breathed out their spirits to him who gave them, and were laid in their last resting-place, with wealth untold beneath them, and earth impregnated with gold-dust for their winding-sheet. Happy, thrice happy, the few who in that hour could truly say to Jesus, Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. Just as our travelers approached the nearest and largest cluster of huts and tents, a sudden change came over the scene. The hour of noon had arrived, and as if with one consent, the miners threw down their tools and swarmed like the skirmishers of an invading host up from the stream towards the huts, a few of the more jovial among them singing at the full pitch of their lungs, but most of them too wearied to care for aught save food and repose. Noon is the universal dinner hour throughout the gold mines, an hour which might be adopted with profit in every way we venture to suggest by those who dig for gold in commercial and legal ledgers and cash books in more civilized lands. When the newcomers reached a moderately sized log cabin which was the chief hotel of the colony, they found it in all the bustle of preparation for an immediate and simple, though substantial, meal. "'Can we have dinner?' inquired Ned, entering this house of entertainment, while his companions were unsaddling and picketing their horses and mules. "'To be sure you can, my hearty,' answered the smiling landlord, "'if you pay for it.' "'That's just the reason I asked the question,' answered Ned, seating himself in a cask. All available chairs, stool, and benches having been already appropriated by mud-bespattered miners, "'because, you must know, I can't pay for it.' "'Oh!' ejaculated mine host with a grin. "'Hard up, eh? Got cleaned out with a trip up and trust to dig em for the future? "'Well, I'll give you credit. Come on and stick in. "'It's every man for himself here and no favor. Thus invited, Ned and his friends squeezed themselves into seats beside the long toppled oak, which boasted a canvas tablecloth and had casks for legs, and made a hearty meal in the course of which they obtained a great deal of useful information from their friend, MacLeod the Scotchman. After dinner, which was eaten hurriedly, most of the miners returned to their work, and Ned, with his friend, under the guidance of MacLeod, went down to the river to be initiated into the mysteries of gold-digging and washing. 
As they approached several of the claims which their owners were busy working, a Yankee swaggered up to them with a cigar in his mouth, an impudent expression on his face, and a pickaxe on his shoulder. "'Guess you've just come to locating them digging, strangers,' he said, addressing the party at large, but looking at Ned, whose superior height and commanding cast of countenance proved him unmistakably to be a leader. "'We have,' replied Ned, who disliked the look of the man. "'Thought so.' "'I'm just going to quit and make tracks for the coast. "'Bliged to cut stick on business that won't wait, I calculate. "'It's plaguey unlucky, too, for my claim's turning out no end of dollars, "'but I must sell it slick off, so I don't mind to let you have it cheap.' "'Is your claim better than the others in the neighborhood?' inquired Ned. "'Well, I just upon it is.' "'Look here!' cried the Yankee, jumping into his claim, which was a pit of about eight feet square and three deep, and delving the shovel into the earth, while Ned and his friends, besides several of the other miners, drew near to witness the result. Maxton and Tom Collins, however, winked knowingly at each other, and, with the Scotchman, drew back to the rear of the group. The first shovelful of earth thrown up was absolutely full of glittering particles of gold, and the second was even more richly impregnated with the precious metal. Ned and the captain stood aghast with amazement, and Bill Jones opened mouth and eyes to their utmost extent. Haru, Och! Good galore! There it is at last, shouted Larry O'Neill, tossing up his arms with delight. Do buy it, Mr. Ned Darlint. I needn't turn up more, I guess, said the Yankee, carelessly throwing down his shovel and filling the earth into a tin bowl or pan. I'll just wash it out and show you what it's like. So saying, he dipped the pan into the stream gently and proceeded to wash out the gold. As this was done in the way usually practiced by diggers, we shall describe it. Setting down the tin pan of earth and water, the Yankee dipped both hands into it and stirred its contents about until it became liquid mud, removing the stones in the operation. It was then moved round quickly with a peculiar motion which caused some of the top to escape over the edge of the pan with each revolution. More water was added from time to time, and the process continued until all the earthy matter was washed away, and nothing but a kind of black sand, in which the gold is usually contained, remained at the bottom. "'There you are!' cried the man, exultingly lifting up a handful of the heavy and shining mixture. Fifteen dollars at least and two shovelfuls. I'll sell you the claim, if you like, for two hundred dollars.' "'I would give it at once,' said Ned, feeling at the moment deeply troubled on account of his poverty. "'But to say truth, I have not a farthing in the world.' A peculiar grin rested on the faces of the miners who looked on as he spoke, but before he could inquire the cause, Tom Collins stepped forward and said, "'That's a first-rate claim of yours. What did you say was your charge for it? Three hundred dollars down.' "'I'll tell you what,' rejoined Tom. I'll give you six hundred dollars for it, if you take out another shovel full of dirt like that. This remark was greeted by a general laugh from the bystanders, which was joined in by the Yankee himself as he leaped out of the hole, and shouldering his shovel went off with his friends, leaving Ned and some others of his party staring at each other in astonishment. What does it all mean? he inquired, turning to Tom Collins, whose laughing countenance showed that he at least was not involved in mystery. It means simply that we were all taken for greenhorns, which was quite a mistake. 
and that we were to have been thoroughly cheated, a catastrophe which has happily been prevented. Maxton and I determined to let the rascally fellow go as far as he could, and then step in and turn the laugh against him as we have done. But explain yourself, I do not yet understand, repeated Ned with a puzzled look. Why, the fact is that when strangers arrive at the diggings full of excitement and expectation, there are always a set of sharpers on the lookout who offer to sell their claims, as they often say, for a mere song, and in order to prove their worth, dig out a little dirt and wash it, as you have just seen done, taking care beforehand, however, to mingle with it a large quantity of gold dust, which, of course, comes to light, and a bargain is generally struck on the spot, when the sharper goes off with the price and boasts of having done a greenhorn, for which he is applauded by his comrades. Should the fraud be detected before the completion of the bargain, as in our case, he laughs with the rest and says probably he weren't so cute as usual. Ugh, the scoundrels, cried Larry, and is there no law for such doings? None. At least in most diggings, men are left to sharpen their own wits by experience. Sometimes, however, the biter is pretty well bitten. There was a poor Chilean once who was deceived in this way, and paid four hundred dollars for a claim that was scarcely worth working. He looked rather put out on discovering the imposture, but was only laughed at by most of those who saw the transaction for his softness. Some there were who frowned on the sharper, and even spoke of lynching him, but they were a small minority and had to hold their peace. However, the Chilean plucked up heart, and leaping into his claim, worked away like a Trojan. After a day or two, he hit upon a good layer of blue clay, and from that time he turned out forty dollars a day for two months. Ah, good luck to him, cried Larry. And did the sharper hear of it? inquired the captain. That he did, and tried to bully the poor fellow and get his claim back again but there was a strong enough sense of justice among the miners to cause such an outcry that the scoundrel was fain to seek other diggings. End of chapter 10